It divides itself into different sections by kind of the nature of how it says stuff. So the first nine chapters are like story form. They're like uh, kind of lessons a father teaches his son about different topics. But when you start into chapter 10, it's more like what we think of Proverbs as being. Like every verse is a different subject which, as I've suggested, has a purpose. Sometimes that seems kind of hard for us. It's like, well, this is random. You know, we talked about this in one verse, and then it's something else in another verse, and something else in another verse. But isn't life like that? You know, don't you kind of need one proverb, and then a totally different proverb, and then another proverb as you're living your life? Life is not lived in topics. You know, this is my part of my life that I deal with diligence, and now, now I'm going to need, you know, my, the Proverbs on generosity for another year, and then this next year I'll have Proverbs on, on my family. No, you live your life with all sorts of different things happening. And so maybe that's at least one reason why he puts the Proverbs with just kind of varying topics um, through this section starting in chapter 10. The section starting in chapter 10 will last to 22.16, and then we'll move on to kind of Proverbs on related subjects. You do see, though, even from 10 to 22, a little bit of variation in the nature of the Proverbs. From chapters 10 to 14, almost all of the Proverbs are opposite Proverbs. The wise man, not man does this, the foolish man does that. You know, uh, the righteous or the the righteous has this character, the wicked has that character, that kind of thing. You know, almost every proverb, the two lines are in contrast. <laughs> Starting in chapter 15, that starts to shift. There's still a lot of opposite proverbs in 15, about two-thirds of them, but there's a third that aren't. And there have been very many that aren't up till this time from chapter 10 on. Also, starting in chapter 15, we get more Proverbs about the Lord. Again, not a majority, but there's several Proverbs that will speak of the Lord, and we hadn't had very many of those in 14 to, 30, uh, to 10 to 14. So you can kind of see some differences in these. Um, so, uh, in chapter 15, would somebody read 1 to 7? A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Gods of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but uh, sorry, and it breaks the spirit. The fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous there is much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so in the hearts of truth. Okay, mostly here, Proverbs de uh, dealing with uh, speech and words. What do you learn in verse 1? <coughs> yeah, what's that say? Put that in your own words. Talk nicely and it will... In other words, 
Yeah, it will stop arguments. It will keep people from getting so angry. When you answer gently and meekly and calmly, it will tend to calm people down and make them less upset. If you answer harshly and, you know, rather, you know, forcefully, what usually happens? Yeah, the other person answers even more harshly and loudly and it escalates into a big nasty fight. So this is a really practical lesson. Now, you might think about some examples of that in the Bible. Can you think of some examples in the Bible, say, where there was a soft answer and it did diffuse a big problem? Abigail's great. Remember the story where David sent men to Nabal and Nabal insulted them and then Abigail intercepted David as he was going to wipe out Nabal and she just said great stuff. Very calm, very wise, very kind, very gentle and she was just a real wise woman for how she said that. That's 1 Samuel 25. Great example because David was mad as could be. And she really managed to calm him down by her gentleness. Can you think of another Bible example where gentleness turned away wrath? Gideon. Gideon. Uh, that's what I was thinking of. In first set, or in the Judges uh, chapter 8, the Ephraimites were really mad that he didn't invite them to the battle against the Midianites. And basically what Gideon said is, oh listen, you killed the two leaders. What did I do compared to that? You guys are the guys that ought to get the glory. <laughs> he compliments them. He says something encouraging to them. And suddenly they're not mad anymore. Try that. You know, who do you normally have the worst arguments with? Siblings. People you're closest to. Parents, those probably pretty much sum up our worst arguments, don't they? You ever tried when uh, you've got some problem with a sibling to say something nice to them and gentle? They're upset with you and you just get really calm back and you, you notice something about them that you really respect. You say, well, you know, thank you for telling me that. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can do better. Now, now, if somebody comes up to you really mad, really upset with you, and they're criticizing you and you say that, what do they usually say back? You say, oh wow, I appreciate you pointing that out to me. I'm sorry. Do they stay mad? Not usually. And usually, wow. That just kind of changes the whole dynamic. What happens if, you're, if your parents, you know, are really on your case about something? <laughs> and instead of arguing, you say, oh, okay. You know, I, that, that, that's helpful. I'm so sorry I didn't think about that. But I really appreciate your telling me this. Do they stay really mad at you? Here's something else, just in practical terms. If you're just even with a friend, 
Maybe you're having a Bible discussion. You ever had an argument in a Bible discussion? Are those really productive? No. Now, by argument, I'm saying where you're just kind of like getting mad at each other. You're kind of raising your voice and things like that. I don't mean that maybe you disagree and you're trying to study it. But if it just turns into kind of this big fight, probably that doesn't... Uh, have you ever convinced somebody in the middle of an argument? Usually not. Here's a couple things you can do. When you start talking about something that might be controversial, or you realize they're upset, what if you lower your voice? You speak more slowly. And you speak really without it changing your tone. And you just try to really calmly and evenly, you know, and slowly respond back. Does that help kind of lower the argument? It really does. You talk slower, talk more even, a little quieter. It's hard to be mad. <laughs> when you got that tone. What about the other side of this? Uh, can you think of Bible examples where a harsh words stirred up anger? Jeroboam? No, Rehoboam. Rehoboam? Yeah. Remember what he said to the people? Yeah, I'm going to be meaner than my father. That didn't make them real happy. What about Jephthah? Do you remember Jephthah in Judges 12? When the Ephraimites were mad at him, they kind of had this, this argument between the Ephraimites and the Gileadites. You know, he said really harsh things, like you guys are worthless, basically. Well, that just made it, you know, more and more tension and, and argument and, and dispute. So, you know, you know, you really have to think about this. When is it the hardest to give a gentle answer? When you're upset. When you're upset. <laughs> but that's right when you need to give the gentle answer. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, if everybody's happy, a gentle answer is not worth a whole lot. It doesn't matter much. It's when you're upset is the very time it's hardest, but that's when you need it. Think about that the next time your parents say something you don't like, the next time your brother or sister does, says or does something you don't like. If you can't speak gently right then, you know the best thing to do? Be quiet until you've got control of yourself and you can speak gently. <coughs> I struggle with that. It's not, you know, sometimes I do okay with that. And then sometimes I'm really upset. <laughs> And I tend to speak aggressively when I needed to speak gently. Thoughts about that one? That one's really good. We should always keep in mind that you know the reason you know we're trying to talk to a person shouldn't be just go uh, win the argument. You know, several times it talks about in the gospel. You know, it's supposed you know you're supposed to be talking to them so you can win their heart over to God. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> Does it really help much to win the argument? A lot of times it doesn't. I've heard of people saying like, you win the battle, but you lose the war. You know, the goal in a Bible discussion is to help them come to the Lord, not just prove you're right. Or shut them up. You know, I said that, they couldn't say anything back. 
Well, that doesn't mean that you help them. Other thoughts? Yes, Philip? We talk a lot about, a lot of times about speaking the truth in love. And so even if we feel justified of what we're saying, I mean, when we feel like a rash answer could be the truth, we need to think back on, on first we get thirteen, I mean, patience, kindness. When we get in these discussions that sometimes they need the heated discussions, we need to go back and exhibit those characteristics of love have. Amen. Do we need this lesson? Do you need this? Yeah. This is pretty practical for us, isn't it? And so wise, so wise. We can all see that's true. We got to apply it. Other thoughts, John, uh, John, Jacob. Uh, it also depends. You know, um, you know, we need to make sure our hearts, when we're something's brought up to us, that we keep in mind. You know that, okay. You know, it's not just here to like make my life miserable. You know, they're trying to help me out. And so, you know, we need to make sure. You know, when I like when I'm confronted with something, you know, I realize that you know this is my brother or this is my sister in Christ, and they're trying to help me. And you know, it's several times it talks about in like in Proverbs, you know, where you know, you know, the you know, the foolish, you know, get angry at reproof and hate reproof. Um, so you know, we need to make sure you know we value that and value the love of our brother has for us for bringing that to him. Yeah, excellent point. We'll see that some more in this uh, section as well. Yeah. Other thoughts? Look at verse two. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, literally makes knowledge good, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. In other words, if you're a wise person, then when you speak something wise, how are you going to say it? Gently, wisely, persuasively. Sometimes people just think, well, it was right what I said. Yeah, but you didn't say it the right tone. You didn't say it thinking about the best way to say it. A wise man is concerned with both the content and the form of what he says. He chooses his words wisely for maximum impact. You know, it's not just a matter of, well, what I said was right. Well, yeah, it may have been, but you didn't say it the right way. The mouth of fools spouts folly. Isn't that an interesting way to say that? So anybody got a different verb there besides spouts? Pours out. Gushes. Gushes. That, that really gives you an idea, doesn't it? Pours out, gushes. What's that telling you about the fool? He thinks he's got something to say. He thinks he's got something to say. And he... He's saying it too much. Yeah, he says it way too much. I mean, he just... He doesn't even... You think about something that, that gushes, that spews out. It's like there's nothing to block it. It like it just pours forth. Like the dam broke. <coughs> and uh, so, you know, he just... He just, you know... Spraying out his words without any control. Is that wise? That's never a good thing, is it? That shows foolishness. Do you always feel like you have to say something? Do you always feel like you've got something to say about everything? <coughs> Who, what kind of person do you see that usually speaks too much? <laughs> 
wonder why that is. Have you noticed that? Why would the person who knows the least speak the most? Make it look like they know the most. Sometimes it's a camouflage. They want to make it look like they know the most. They don't know that they know the least. Sometimes they don't even realize they don't know very much. <laughs> the less you know, the less you realize you don't know. Absolutely. Some people can never learn anything because they don't stop long enough to listen to learn anything. Think about people you know that you think really, you know, just gush out. You know, especially things that are like, ooh, that wasn't smart. That wasn't you. That you knew that no, that's not right. Who what kind of people are you thinking about that do that? I'm thinking of a particular category of people that tend to do that a lot. Teenagers? <laughs> what kind of teenagers? <laughs> Especially what kind? Boys. Especially boys. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and what kind of boys? Younger. Now listen guys, can you all can you all think about this? Is there kind of an age group where a young guy just said that tends to say things really confidently <laughs> that they don't know what they're talking about. You know, it, it's kind of funny how that works, but some of you are smiling, some of you have seen that, some of you have done that. <laughs> it's like you go through that category where you actually have learned a little something, but it's not quite as much as you think, and you tend to make really confident assertions and you make yourself look really dumb because you don't know as much as you think you do. Uh, my son used to say, uh, how did he say it? Something like, hardly a day goes by where I don't speak confidently about something that I know nothing about. <laughs> he could at least make fun of himself. In fact, you know, when he was probably, I don't know, maybe give or take 14, you know, we actually be able to joke about that. I mean, he'd say something really like, totally, you know, like he knew everything about something and it was just totally wrong. And we, he was actually able for us just to kind of laugh with him about that. You kind of, there you go again, you know, kind of thing. And, and usually we could handle that in a way and he handled it in a way. We weren't defensive about it. We could just say, you know, that's another one of them, Kyle, where you don't realize that you don't know. Sometimes young people will get more defensive than that. And there'll be, you'll be hurt if everybody doesn't just swallow their, you know, confident pronouncement about something that they know just a little about. It's, it's wise to control yourself. It's wise not to overestimate your knowledge. I was talking with a guy yesterday who uh, was going to be talking with the men in his church. He's the youngest Christian of the group. And he was planning on really bawling out the men for some of the things they've said and done and how they're conducting themselves and all that. I said, I don't think it's a good idea for you to talk very much in this meeting. He said, yeah, because I planned this, I prepared this, and they really need this. I'm like, you're the youngest one there. I don't think you're giving them a lecture is a wise thing. It was really hard for him to listen to. I think he may not do it now. Uh, but it was really hard for him because he feels really strongly. And he's probably not totally wrong. 
he's somewhat wrong because he doesn't have real depth. He doesn't know as much. He doesn't have much experience. Some of what he says, though, is probably right, too. But for him to just go in and, and I'm going to give a lecture to all these men in this church being 15 years old, that's not a very smart idea. You know, the fool is the guy who tends to just blurt out all the things he's thinking. Resist that temptation. It's not bad to speak. Proverbs says a lot about the good in words. Just think before you speak. Don't feel like you've got an offer, uh, that you've got to offer an opinion or a personal illustration about everything that comes along. And you've all seen other people who've done it. And you've all, you know, there's, there's some people that when they start talking, you're like, oh, you know, this is not going to be good. You know, but, but have you ever thought about what it's like to be that person? They don't think about that. You know, they don't realize they're doing it. So just be wise. If, what, what are you going to do if your parent, maybe, or some other person comes to you and says, you know, you're really talking too much. Has anybody ever said that to you? You don't have to raise your hand, but, you know, would you, would you be defensive? Would you like, no, I'm not. Or would you say, wow, maybe I need to think about that. That's not saying every time you're even criticized like that, that it's always valid. But if it's especially, you know, you know the, who are the people you ought to listen to the most? Okay, but not all older people. <laughs> there might be something to that, but uh, I don't know. The people who don't like it. They usually pick up things that you don't want to hear. It's usually right. There's probably some truth to that. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. But yeah, the people who like you may spare your feelings too much. The people who don't probably won't. So they may really help you. I think some people who haven't liked me have helped me sometimes. I haven't liked hearing it from them. But that's not really who I was thinking of. <laughs> sometimes, but not always. Some of you may have parents who aren't wise. What? Wise people. Wise people. Exactly. It, think about this. Are there people that you really see as wise, generally speaking? That you really see them as strong and spiritual? And, uh, and about most things, you think they actually say good things. If a person like that tells you, hey man, you're really talking too much. Or any other criticism. If it's a wise person, you always thought they were wise until they got on your case. Really think long and hard before you just reject what they say. They don't always have to be right. But you, you really want to weigh that out. And so, good, good lesson in just restraining ourselves. Comments about that one? Tyler. Um, I think this is a really, really timely idea to be talking about. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that may impart grace to the hearers. Um, I'm taking some intro to law classes at IUPUI, and one of the cases we're continually talking about is, is a case called Snyder versus Phelps, um, which involves a man and an organization called the Westboro Baptist Church, if you're familiar with them at all. Um, I, I wasn't even until I started hearing about this, but apparently they're an organization which has been picketing military funerals with large signs 
um, denouncing the fact that God hates America because of its tolerance of homosexuality. Um, and the common class is always, why are Christians so stupid? Why do they have to be so mean? Why do they have to be so intolerant? Um, and so, this, I mean, this is the hot topic of the, of the day. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of torn because the message is one of God hates sin, we should not tolerate it, yet they're preaching in such a fashion as to where everyone says, why are these Christians so abrasive? Um, and so, we should, we should be taking into account, that's the way the world sees Christianity, and in turn, it's the way the world sees us. We should be doing as much as possible in order to debunk the myth that indeed that's what Christians do, that's what they act like. Um, yes, we should take a stand in order to fight against sin and tolerance of sin, but we should be willing to speak speech and sin with no corrupt words, but what is necessary for that. It's a very good point. And it's not so much just what the world thinks about us, but it's really doing things the way God said. Is it always okay to say anything as long as it's true? No. There are some times that even true statements, it's not the time, it's not the place, it's not the way. You know, some people always say, well, it's true. Well, yeah, but this wasn't, this wasn't the way to speak that truth. You know, there's more questions than just if it's true. Is it kind? Is it wise? Is it beneficial? There's a time to take a stand and people won't like it. They didn't like Jesus. So it's not like everybody's going to like us. Or that we ought to be so upset if people don't. But if we act unwisely and just speak in ways that God would not want us to, just because it was right, or just because they're wrong, that doesn't justify us. Good illustration. Jake? Um, like, it's kind of like what Dan said. If you're talking all the time, you aren't listening. And if you aren't listening, you aren't learning. And if you aren't learning, you don't know anything. And I think a lot of the saying, um, like, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. So that you can listen twice as much as you talk. And, I mean, it's not so much, like, we definitely need to watch our mouth and watch when we speak. But, we also need to look at the other side and think about how much we're listening. Good point. That's an excellent point. I mean, you probably learn more by listening than by talking. Good thought. thought other thoughts? Yes, go. We were talking about the tongue in verse 2 and how you speak the truth. And I think it's, I think it's so cool that Jesus, he had different tones for people. He constantly, like, we can see the rich young ruler, after he said, what must I do to be saved? It says, it's almost like, it seems to me, he took a minute, and it's like, he saw the love, and he said, sell your possessions. But it seems like that was just a firm statement. But then he had the Pharisees, who should have known better, and he was firm, and he's saying, you guys are being hypocritical. This is what you need to be doing, and you know better. And then he has, like, what we call, the woman called adultery. You know what? Go and sin no more. Make it right. And so each time it's something different. And that's something that we need we need wisdom to do because wisdom is ever learning. And life and just what we go through in our experiences are gonna show us what time to take as each situation arrives. 
great illustration of that. Jesus is the perfect model of how to say, what to say, when to say, who to say it to. And it is. He shows wisdom about how he approaches different people and groups of people. Look at verse 3. This is kind of a different point. But wow, this is so good. What does the Lord do? He sees everything. Now, I like the way this says it. You know, theologians speak about the omniscience of God. You know what omniscience means? All-knowing. Proverbs speaks about the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Which do you think is more, you know, impresses you more? Thinking about the eyes of the Lord or thinking about his omniscience? Yeah, I, I like the saying it more concretely like that. You know, thinking about the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. When I think about his omnis omniscience, it's kind of abstract. You know, the Bible always says things so well. It sees everything, the evil and the good. So every little good thing you do, God sees it. Every little bad thing you do, God sees it. He sees all the things we do all the time. Comments? Sort of bringing this into connection with what we've already been saying, he's going to bring every word that we, that we say into judgment. And so we have to, that gives us even greater incentive to think about what we say before we actually say it. Absolutely. And, you know, if you, we've maybe talked about this before somewhere along the line, but what if uh, you hired a new person uh, for, for a job? Um, you know, and this is like the first few days on the job. What kind of jobs do you give them in the first few days? Can't mess up. Yeah, easy ones that they can't mess up. If they do mess it up, it won't be a real big thing. Why do you start with those kind of jobs? Yeah, what are you trying to do? Ease them in, train them, test them. You know, what if they really mess up those little things that don't matter much? Yeah, you're not going to even give them the big things because they can't get the little ones done. God's testing us with the little things. You know, how do we do with the small things? They don't have a lot of consequences, but he's testing us and seeing how we do with that before he gives us bigger things. So God's seeing all the stuff, good and bad, even the little ones. And, and we need to really think about the Lord seeing us. Would that change anything? What if... Um, well, I mean, at home, do people speak differently to each other when there's company? <laughs> yeah, I see various reactions to that. Uh, I take it that some homes are like that. Uh, well, did you know there's always company? Because God's always there watching. You know, can you imagine if God actually was visible and like, uh, you know, you're having a conversation with your parents or your siblings and actually you could actually see God right there beside you? 
Would that maybe change a little bit about how you talk to him? <laughs> you know, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. He's, he is right there watching us. We just don't actually see him. So we need to mentally be aware of that. Because even if it weren't him, maybe it was just another person there, even that would straighten us up. Jacob. Uh, on Ashley's door, her parents had this thing that if you spoke to your friends the way you speak to your family, you had any friends. Um, <laughs> I like that. So much more when it's applied to God. Like, not even if you're speaking to God the way you speak to your family, but if you're speaking to your family and your friends with God right there, I mean, so much more. You have a with God. <laughs> yeah. We didn't think about him, his eyes being there the last time we really messed up, did we? That might have stopped us. You know, if, if you were really seeing God right there when they're telling a dirty joke at school, would you be kind of embarrassed to be right in the middle of it, laughing at it and telling some of your own? You know, he, his eyes are there. He's worth thinking about. Other thoughts? Verse 4 says that a soothing tongue is a tree of life. Now, you've read about a tree of life before in the Bible. Where does that come in at? Genesis. There was a tree of life in the garden... Do you know what the tree of life in the garden was for? Life. life. Whoa, that was a tough question, I know. But that was one Chris could do well with. So uh. It gave life. You know, you ate that fruit and it helped you live. Well, they were banished from the tree of life. So guess what happened to them? They died. There's a, in a, in a certain sense... Our words can be a tree of life. They can give life and strength to other people. You know, they can be something that other people listen to and it helps them live. Did you know words could do that much good? They could be a tree of life. That they can bring life to others. But they can't. They are a tree of life. But perversion in it crushes the spirit. If you pervert the words, then it just hurts and messes everything up. But if you speak wise words, see, it's not that words are bad. It's not that we should never speak. Because they can really help. You'd love to be a life source. It's just you have to speak the words God wants us to. Comments? Okay, verse 5. What does the fool do? Yeah. But if you're wise, you regard reproof. That is, you, you, you respect it and treasure it. Why do you think the fool re rejects his father's discipline? What, say, who said? Because he's foolish. Because he's foolish. Well, yeah. <laughs> what is he thinking when his father uh, corrects him? He doesn't know he's talking about. Yes! He doesn't know what he's talking about, and I don't really need him to tell me anything, because I pretty well know what I'm doing already. Pride leads us to rejecting correction. 
Um, I mean, can't you look back sometimes on times when a wise person corrected you and you didn't like it and you didn't accept it, but later you realize it was right and you should have listened. You know, we need to, our whole response to being corrected tells a lot about us. It really shows you whether you're wise or foolish. And good parents, I know in our culture, maybe especially, there are some parents who aren't Christians. There are some parents who would encourage their children to do wrong. He's not talking about those kind. But many of you have parents who are Christians. Parents who love God. And fathers who would tell you the things that while you don't like to hear them, you know they're actually beneficial if you let yourself realize that. It's so unwise to reject that. You know, here you've got this blessing God gave you, a father you can respect, a father who's trying to help you do what's right. I don't need, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I know what I'm doing. You're, you're actually saying no to a blessing God gives. Don't do that. Comments and questions about that. Well, look at what a, a, a wise man and a fool get. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but troubles in the income of the wicked. You know, there's what, what, what a righteous man gets, he can enjoy. A wicked man, there's so much trouble in what he gets that he can never enjoy it. You know, there's so many bad consequences, there's so many complications that his life just turns into a big mess. And not even his income is mixed with a lot of trouble and difficulty. And then verse 7. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but the hearts of fools are not so. Look at this. What do the wise people do with their wisdom? They spread. So again, we're not saying never speak. We're saying speak wise. Speak knowledgeable. Speak productive, helpful, useful things for the benefit of others. If you're a wise man, speak. Spread that knowledge. A wise person is not a miser. He's not trying to hoard up all knowledge for himself. He wants to share that. But the hearts of fools are not so. Isn't that an interesting contrast between the lips and the heart? Why would he contrast the, contrast the lips of the wise with the hearts of fools? It's what's in your heart that you're going to end up saying. Absolutely. The mouth speaks, speaks what's in the heart. So what you say just reveals the content of your heart. Why can't the fool say anything worthwhile? That's exactly right. He's got kind of an empty storehouse. He hasn't really got anything worthwhile to, to deliver. You know, if there's nothing in, the, in stock, you know, you're not going to be able to give anything. So you really need to get wisdom stored up in your heart, in your mind. You need to grow in knowing so that then you can spread it. Which is why um, 
you want to really learn before you speak. It's why you need to prepare well. You know, um, some of you guys sometimes have chances to like uh, preach or teach or give an invitation at church. Some of you girls have opportunities to talk to, to some of your friends and teach them. Um, should you just kind of do that off the cuff? Kind of like, you didn't know anything, but I'll just start talking and maybe something will come to me. Should you do it without preparing? No. We really ought to fill our heart with things so we'll have something worthwhile to say. Just because you're a good talker. Some people are. Some people talk pretty well. But if they don't have anything of value to contribute, it's empty and not helpful even at that. You know, that's why I've kind of encouraged, you know, that I very much like the idea of young people thinking about and preparing to ultimately take the gospel to a place where it hasn't been heard much. But I don't encourage people to do that like right now. If you don't have much you know about the Bible, why would you go somewhere and try to teach that? Learn, grow, really fill yourself up, and then you'll have plenty to share that will be profitable. Comments and questions? You can really see the difference between the people who have God's Word in their heart, and they, you can just tell they really love it, and the difference, and then you see the person who's just talking about it because everybody else is doing that, so he needs to do it. You can really see the difference in how effective they are and just how they act. So much so. I want to teach too. Can I, can I preach a lesson too? Sometimes you see people doing that where they just want, they want attention. You know, I want, I want everybody to think I'm like that too. You ought to speak because your heart's so full of the Lord and of his will and of his word that, that it's just, you just can't keep it back. Not because you want attention. Not because, well, let me do this too. That looks like fun. Written. Um, I think our hearts, you know, we, our hearts need to be so full that not only would we want to take the opportunities maybe at church or whatever, but at school or you know, you've got opportunities, but to take them. Do you only like to talk about the Lord when you're going to get positive attention for it, or do you like to talk about the Lord because you want to talk to everybody about the Lord? That can kind of tell you something, can't it? If you really love the Lord and you just can't keep from talking about him, it's probably not just going to be when you're around Christians who are going to think you're good when you do that. It's probably going to be around people who are going to laugh at you for it too because you're filled up with the Lord. Good, good comments. Other thoughts on these first seven verses? I was just going to say that, uh, you know, that you see different, two different motives here, I think, in verse 7. You know, like the wise man, you spread his knowledge around, you know, so he can help people, just like we've been talking about earlier. But the foolish, you know, you know, his heart is different because, you know, he just wants, like you, you know, like what we've just been saying, you know, he just wants attention. Yeah, you've got to really watch your motives and watch what you're trying to do. It, it's unfortunate. Something that I think is bad is that people give too much attention to somebody who gets up in front and does something at church. 
and it almost can become like you know something that you know you get a lot of like people praising you and thinking highly of you and all that that stinks because it can really help it can really kind of pervert your whole purpose behind it and you can get to where you just like that attention you know you like doing stuff and even it you know what it can get to it can get to like well I know I'm doing pretty good because I got up and spoke at church I got up and led a song at church so I know God's pleased with me do you really think what he's really looking for is people who are getting up a lot at church and leading a lot of songs and saying a lot of prayers? You think that's what really makes a person a strong Christian? It's definitely not. Um, so don't make that your primary focus. And when you speak, it's because you've got something to say. You love God. You want to help other people by sharing what your heart's full of with the Word. Not man, I, hope, I think they'll think this is pretty good. You know, I think, I think I'll get a lot of people complimenting me. Other thoughts? Dan? Speaking is not a right, it's a privilege. It's a blessing that God gave us, so it's easier, right? Amen. Philip? A lot of times you're talking about how, how you can get puffed up if you get up in front of your block. And... If you continuously do that, and people keep building you up like that, you can let your arrogance get in the way of the word. And Moses, when the Israelites were at the Red Sea, he said, Be still and see the salvation of the Lord. So we need to put whatever pride we have aside, and let God do the talking through us. And just do, just do our jobs, and then say, you know what, it's just what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm kind of curious about this. This would be a good audience to give this as a test for. How many of you guys have gotten up in front of your church and given a talk, led a class or a sermon or something like that? How many of you have done that? Okay. What do you think, guys? Um, how many of you guys feel like people have said too much to you, telling you how good you did and it's been hard for you? How many would you say that's been hard for you that they've said too much? How many of you would say that it's really been helpful to you that people have said what they've said and they've encouraged you with it? How many of you would say it's really overall been more encouraging than a stumbling block? Well, a couple of you maybe. Isn't that interesting? You know, I, I grow, I've thought about that more as I've gotten older. You know, be careful with each other even. And, you know, don't don't overpraise somebody. Here's something that'll help you with it. I've said this before, but think about this. Have you ever heard somebody say, speak in your congregation and they really did a bad job? I mean, like they really didn't do it very well at all. I want you to go right beside them after church and just listen to everybody telling them what a good job they did. The same people that told you You've done a wonderful job the week before. <laughs> that will humble you. Because you know why they're saying that to you? They want to encourage you. And, and, and people, here's what older people think. They think it was that person, that younger person, it was probably hard for them to get up there. And they're probably like, probably awkward. 
And if we don't say something to encourage them, it'll probably discourage them. And so they're trying to be really nice to you and make you feel like you didn't do a bad job. That's what they're thinking. It's not that they're thinking, oh, that was wonderful. It's that they think they want to encourage you. Yes. Okay. So what would be your suggestion as far as encouraging each other? Because, I mean, if, you know, I need to try and compliment the preacher, you know, if someone said a prayer or something, I need to try and encourage them that way. But I don't, I mean, at the same time, I'm also thinking that I don't want to pump them up at the same time. So do you have any idea what the balance is between that? You might think about what would be helpful to you. You know, I don't know where the balance is. I struggle, I struggle with that a lot myself. I do know something Paul would often do. He would often say, I thank God for your speech and knowledge, like he did in 1 Corinthians. Or I thank God for what he's doing in you. Now that's helpful, because at least it's getting the focus on God's doing it, and it's not how great you are. So that might be one thing. And I don't know. What do you guys think? What would be a helpful thing, Ethan? Being a preacher, so I've heard a lot of compliments on the sermons about saying that to my dad for years. And you can kind of tell when, like, say a good sermon and stuff. But then there's a few people that will say, I like your sermon, it helped me on this point. And I think I think that's just a little better than just saying, you did a good job speaking. Say, God encouraged me through you today. That may help. I wonder if more mature groups tend to say less. You know, at, at New Salisbury, you know, for me, it, I don't hear hardly any compliments. I mean, I, I think, I know, it's not funny, but I, I think people aren't focused on your performance. They're focused on thinking about it. And, and when, it, when somebody does, it's more like, yeah, that really made me think. You know, that, that, that point was helpful to me, or whatever, which is better. Um, I appreciated last night, and this sometimes is helpful, and I appreciate at least the sentiment behind this. Ethan's dad was, you know, in a roundabout way, you know, saying some nice things to me, but he said a couple of times, he said, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to tempt you to be prideful, you know, or whatever. I think that's how it's helpful to recognize that. Uh, and he was careful even about what he said, I thought. I mean, sometimes I've done that. And sometimes I've even asked. You know, I, I'd say something somewhat positive and then say, did that hurt you? Is that, is that bad for you, for me to say that? Sometimes that may help. But I don't know the answer totally. Do you some of the rest of you, what do you think, Bill? I think one of the most encouraging ladies in our congregation, she's an elder's wife. And what she used to do, like if I got up there, Maybe I was talking too fast, or I didn't get enough time in between like, the scriptures that I was using. She'd say, "You know, I'm proud of you for getting up there. I'm proud of the improvements, but you can be doing this better." And so you have this encouragement, like, "I'm proud of you. that you're supposed to be doing this, but you're not done yet. You can keep getting better." And then that's not like it's not just slamming me. That's motivation to keep on going and to keep getting better. That's good, Britton. Uh, I, just, I think to my dad, like, um, I've heard him say a lot of times, people tell him he did a good job. He says, I've got good material. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. really true. All you're doing is presenting what God's presenting to you. And it's so yeah. true. Guys, think about this. I, again, you've probably heard me say this. But I think this is so true. 
I don't know many people who speak who are good speakers. They're not guys you'd want to hear if they were given a lecture about economics or world history or something like that. Most of them are not very good speakers. But you think of them as being good because they're talking about the word and the word is really powerful. And it really, some of those lessons are like, wow, that really moved me. But if you stop and think about it, it wasn't because the speaker had great techniques, it's because the word is really powerful. You know, so we mistake it. You remember when John saw those visions in Revelation and he fell down before the angel to worship him? What did the angel say? Get up, I'm a servant like you are. I didn't invent these visions. You know, these were God's visions. Sometimes people think that the messenger invented the message. Or they think that, well, he said it so well, that's why I like the message. If it's God's message and it's any is worthwhile for you, it's not because of how they said it. It's because the message is from God and it's amazing. So maybe we should glorify God more and focus on the guy who delivers it less. Right. You can probably talk with someone about a lesson that they give in such a way that you know a third party wouldn't even know that one of them had given the lesson. You know, and you could just talk about the benefits of that. Yes. And you know, it'd be kind of hard to take that personally. Yes. But it would be beneficial. Good, Dan. One of the most encouraging, I guess, ways of you know of talking about encouraging speakers for me, you know, had been when I give a sermon, I give a message, and then like a day or two later, they send me a text. Or they, they tell me about they've been thinking about those things. That's what's encouraging to me because you know that's something that shows me that they're they're thinking upon the message, they're thinking and thinking how that applies to them. And that just makes everything worthwhile to me. Okay, we need to be careful with those things. That's a helpful discussion. It would be uh, good for us to think about that more, perhaps. Um, somebody want to read eight to twelve. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. Now, verse 8 is interesting because he's contrasting a sacrifice with a prayer. Which would you think would be more valuable, more impressive, a sacrifice or a prayer? Well, it does, but if it was just contrast, what if it's the same person giving a sacrifice or a prayer, which one would you be more impressed by? Sacrifice, why? Yeah, it's, it's a lot more expensive, takes more effort, represents more uh, of uh, uh, really of a sacrifice. I mean, you think about bringing a, a, a bull or, or a lamb or, you know, a ram or different kinds of animals and, and bringing it, and you're just sacrificing this perfectly good animal. You know, that's something. A prayer, how much effort does it take to pray? Maybe a lot if you're praying really well. But generally speaking, 
you know, prayer doesn't require much expense. You know, it doesn't necessarily require a lot of time. You know, things like that. But here he says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The prayer of the upright is his delight. Here's a case where God hates the sacrifice and loves the prayer. Why is that? Exactly. The spiritual condition of the worshiper determines whether the worship will be pleasing to God or not. If you're a wicked man, your wickedness will ruin the sacrifice. You know, God won't like the sacrifice because your character's bad. So worship in itself is not necessarily pleasing to God, even if you do the worship right, if your life isn't right. God's, much, God's more concerned with, with your daily life than he is with just going through some worship act. Isn't that true? Which is another thing. I want to come back in this one a moment to getting up front and worship. Is God really impressed when you get up front and worship but what you do in school is bad? No. God is concerned with your daily life not just what you do in worshiping him. We've got to get our life right. Then look at verse 9 because that fits with this. Why is it that this is true in verse 8? Well, verse 9, it's because the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Everything a wicked man does displeases God. But God loves the one who pursues righteousness. Your worship and your life can't be separated. When you pursue righteousness, that's a good term. Purpose, commitment, intensity. You pursue righteousness. God loves you. So God ties together your life with your worship. He loves the righteous. He hates the wicked. Comments and questions? Good principles. Think about them. Look at verse 10. What happens to the man who turns aside from the right way? Hey, he's going to be punished. It's going to be bad. And what if he hates reproof? What will happen to him? He'll die. That's the deal. I mean, you don't listen to the reproof, you'll die. You know, you want to have correction so you'll do the right thing. This may be, you know, kind of a stupid illustration, but it came to my mind. It's a good, good lesson. Um, how much do we know when it's all said and done about good ways to live life? You know, I mean, we're not the experts on that matter, right? We haven't been around that long. We don't know that much. Wouldn't it be good to check with the author of life to see maybe the best way to live this and some danger things that you don't want to do and things like that? I remember a long time ago, I, I was talking to a guy who, who taught driver's ed for years and years. And he taught driver's ed in northern Ohio for a while where there's a lot of snow and ice and one thing or another. And he told me about this boy in his class 
that he told him, you know, how some of you have driven or have heard these things about how you kind of like if your car is skidding, sliding, or whatever, how you turn the wheel to, you know, kind of turn into the skid or whatever. He said this boy argued with him. <laughs> this boy didn't think he knew what he was talking about, didn't think that was right. Well, he had the boy out, you know, in the, in the driver's ed car, and he managed to slide the car off the road and pin it in between two trees, one in front and one in back. He was telling all about that. But it's like, isn't that the way that goes? The guy who doesn't think he needs to know, the guy who thinks he knows better than the driver's ed instructor, is probably the guy who's going to slide off the road. You know? And you would think the driver's ed instructor might know a little bit more than the kid who's never driven before. Does that, does that make any sense? You would think the Lord who made us might know a little bit more than we who are his creatures and who haven't even lived very long. So you don't listen to reproof from God and from godly people. Guess what's probably going to happen? You're probably going to mess your life up and die. It doesn't make sense not to listen to the Lord and the people he's put in your life to help you. You know, it's like the boy who says, oh, you're wrong, driver's ed instructor. This is the right way to do it. You know, that's kind of just like an accident waiting for a place to happen. So, All right, comments or questions uh, through verse 10. Verse 11. Sheol and Abaddon. I think here we mean like the people in their graves. They lie open before the Lord. The Lord can see even into the grave. He can see even the people who are dead. How much more the hearts of men. If God can see the dead in their graves, surely he can see living people's hearts. He knows what's inside of us. You might notice that you've got heart a lot in these verses. Uh, several passages talk about uh, the heart here, and in verse 13, the heart, the mind in verse 14, the heart in verse 15. You're dealing a lot with the heart. God knows what's inside of you. You know, he doesn't just see the external like we do. He sees what's inside, too. All right, comments and thoughts on verse 11. Our actions are based off of what our heart feels like. You're exactly right. And so it's really important that we change our heart. Um, I've started doing this a little bit more. Somebody says to me, you know, I'm really having a hard time changing my life. I've got like this bad habit and it's wrong and I just keep doing it. And I've tried doing this and I've tried doing that. I've tried reading the Bible every day. I've tried praying every day. You know, I've tried changing certain things, but I still keep falling. Well, you know, I've gone to saying this sometimes. Well, I don't care how many chapters you read or how many other things you do, if you don't want to do what's right, then you won't. Isn't that true? I, I've seen people who like, well, it's just not right. This is not good. I mean, I don't understand. I did my Bible reading today and still I did something wrong. Still I fell in my addiction. Well, just doing your Bible reading doesn't make you do what's right if you still in your heart want to do wrong. You have to come to where you love God and you want to do what's right. 
If you don't want to do what's right, guess what? You're probably not going to. Because <laughs> you mostly do what you want to. So you've got to change your heart, not just go through some rituals. Does that make sense? Our, our whole life is directed by what's in our heart. So don't just think that finding the right technique, it would be a little bit like, um, oh, maybe uh, maybe there's some kind of a, uh, a technique for like, uh, you know, they have like, I don't even know much about this stuff, but they have like nicotine patches and things and other things to, to, to help somebody get over smoking. If they, if they want to quit smoking, you know, there's all, and there's different kinds of techniques. But you know, some people go through all that and they smoke. Because there's no technique that just stops you from smoking. We're just using that as an illustration. But, you know, you can't just say, well, but I, I, I use a nicotine back. Yeah. But if you still wanted to smoke, <laughs> you'll still smoke. Still want to do wrong. If that's what's in your heart, you're going to do wrong. Even if you're doing all the techniques, but I, but, I, but I did this and this and this. It's not just a matter of, you know, I go through kind of a mechanical ritual and now I'm okay. It all goes back to my heart. You need to think about that. You're having a hard time with your life. Examine your heart. Take it. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, like, I'm a good person. I just do bad things sometimes. Um, but Matthew 7, 18 says a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. If we are a good person, we can't do bad. It's not that we won't or we will try not to. It's we won't be able to. And it's the same way if we're a bad tree. That if we keep on going back to the bad things that we always do, that's because we're a bad tree and we're producing bad fruit. So what do you do? You, uh, what, what's your favorite fruit? Paul's favorite is a peach. Alright, Paul's favorite is a peach. What's your favorite? <laughs> oh well, alright. We'll use peaches. And if you like peaches, alright, just two or three of you. I think good peaches are great. Alright, well, what if you got an apple tree? You could take some peaches and you could like uh, super glue them, gorilla glue them onto the apple tree. Couldn't you? But is that going to make the apple tree start growing peaches? No. I don't think so. You know, you could start tying peaches onto the apple tree. But that's not going to make the apple tree grow peaches. If you want peaches, what are you going to have to do with your apple tree? Well, I'm not talking about grafting. <laughs> Bottom line is you've got to take your apple tree out and plant a peach tree if you want peaches. You've got to change the tree. You can't just change the fruit without changing the tree. You can't change your behavior without changing your heart. Changing who you are. And that's where people get it wrong. They just try to change the fruit but they don't change themselves. It doesn't work that way. Caleb. Well, even with drafting, you still got to cut out the old. Right. And then you got to put new in. I mean, it's still the same. 
Yeah, it's the same principle, it's yeah. just a little more complicated. But yeah. <laughs> and I don't even know if a peach graft would go onto an apple tree. I don't know how that is. Uh, Dan says it won't, but I don't, haven't really considered it to be a horticulture expert, so I don't know. Have you done this before? Yeah. You actually tried grafting it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and peaches wouldn't, peaches wouldn't do it. It's like five different apples on one tree. That's what? My grandfather has five different apples on one tree. Whoa! But no peaches. No peaches. It's not working. Okay, so the grafting idea is out. Britain. Sometimes I just want the apple and the Yes! Yeah, and that won't work either because no man can serve two masters. Your eye can't look in two directions. Double vision is a problem. Alright? Um, and then I love verse 12. A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. Who do you go to for advice? Should go to the wise. Who do we? Who are we tempted to go to? Yes. Don't you go? Isn't it tempting to go to the people who will tell you what you want to hear? Your best friend, who's never going to tell you you're wrong, who's always going to sympathize with you. Isn't that the temptation? You want advice about a spiritual question, a spiritual decision. Go to the weakest person in the church, right? Let them help you make the decision. <laughs> well, yeah, if you want to make the wrong one. I see that happening a lot. It's crazy. The weakest people go to the weakest people to help them make their decisions. Guess what? They make weak decisions. <laughs> you want to go to the wise. Even if you think they may not be so nice to you. Remember what uh, Ahab said about Micaiah? I don't like to talk to him. He always says bad things about him. Yes! That's, uh, what is that? First uh, Kings 22. Uh, you know, I hate him. He always says bad things about me. <laughs> well, that was Ahab. You know? Uh, if, if a prophet said good things about Ahab, you would really wonder about the prophet. <laughs> you know, do the wise people you're around always say bad things to you? You know, I mean, you might think again about your parents. And again, I know so, a few of you have parents that wouldn't give you good advice. There's some parents who might tell you, hey, go out and have a great time, party a lot. You know, why are you dealing with this Christian stuff? But many of you have good parents. Do they always tell you things you need to change? If they do, is it possible that it's because you have a lot of things to change? You know, I mean, maybe they're correcting you a lot because you need it a lot. And we're like, ah, oh, they're always saying bad stuff to me. Well, maybe if you changed, they wouldn't. Um, so this is just great a scoffer does not love one who reproves him he will not go to the wise he just doesn't want to be corrected do you want to be corrected think about this you go to a wise person what do you tell them you go to a wise person you want their advice what do you tell them 
how do you tell them about the problem? The best possible slant in your favor. Yes! You doctor the story up so much that anybody answer it in your favor. Or are you really open and honest with them? Do you tell them all the facts? Do you tell them how it really is? Or do you try to tell in such a way that they'll probably tell you what, they, what you want to hear? Don't expect to get wise advice from somebody you don't give full information to, an honest information to. If what you're doing is just wanting to hear the advice you want to hear, don't even bother going, just do what you want to. I mean, why are you going to a wise person and then omitting a bunch of stuff? and changing a bunch of the facts and making yourself look better just forget about the advice do what you want to that's what you want to anyway if you're going to go to the wise you be honest comments and thoughts about that? I think this teaches us how careful we need to be while choosing friends because the best friends are going to be the ones that are most honest you're right. And the most close to God to give godly responses. Is it you, Phil? Yeah. Um, one thing I think that we can't overlook is the effort that has to be shown. I mean, in, or at the very end it says, he will not go to the wise. The scoffer doesn't take the initiative to go and seek out help. Oftentimes we think, well, if a wise person isn't coming to me, I guess my problem isn't that bad. It's not that bad. Maybe it's not noticeable. But he says, take the admission, be assertive, go and seek out the help, and then you'll be corrected. You know why the wise person doesn't go to the scoffer to correct him? That's the first part of the verse. The scoffer does not love the one who reproves him. <laughs> Aren't there some people you know if you go and try to tell them what they need to hear, they'll get mad at you? So what do you do? You don't bother He's not going to take it anyway. He's not going to like it anyhow. I'll just not talk to him. So don't expect a wise person to come to you and rebuke you if you've got that kind of attitude. Cass? It's like, it's kind of funny. I mean, you can catch yourself a lot of times I don't call myself like talking to someone. And you say, well, you know, I've been trying. And you catch yourself and you're like, wait, no, no, I haven't. And then it's like, you try to get close to someone, but you can't because you're wearing a mask. In fact, you're wearing a mask. Now, I'll give you another one. I mean, I'm just thinking about practical kinds of things. When we go to somebody for advice. Um, here's something I see happening sometimes. See what you think about this. See if this works in your life, too. I see people who say, maybe they're really, they've, they've really done something bad. And so they open up to a wise person about it, and they tell them what they've done. You've done that before, haven't you? Maybe opened up and talked to somebody, maybe even somebody you wronged and confessed what you did to them, or maybe some wise person that you acknowledged what you'd done wrong. If you have done that well in being open and confessing, how, would you, how should you feel after you do that? How do you usually feel? After you've been better. Well, there's a word. What, who said that word? Relief. Yeah. You feel a sense of relief. What if you don't? What if you go to somebody, you confess, you tell them what you've done, and you don't feel any relief? 
you still you feel like I haven't been forgiven. You still feel guilty. Why is that usually? That's exactly right. Think about it. If you still feel that way, it's probably because you've still been hiding stuff. So you won't feel any different. Or, or maybe you've told it, but you don't intend to change. <laughs> you know, you just told it, but you're not trying to change. And you know in your heart, you're just going to go back and do the very same thing again. You're not going to feel a sense of voice. So when you go to the wise, be honest. And then listen and receive godly instruction. And love them for it. That's a wisdom. Other thoughts? All right, why don't we take a break? And then we'll uh, talk again.